Hello, and welcome to a supplemental episode for your reconsideration, the podcast where we re-examine best picture races and determine if the Academy got it right. I'm Devin. And I'm Kyle. And so on this supplemental episode, um, last week in our in our season premiere episode, we talked about the 35th Academy Awards honoring films that came out in 1962. So today we're going to look at a few films that weren't nominated for Oscars, um, but but still deserve some discussion because sometimes more than five great movies come out in a year. So that's what these supplementals are about. <laughs> so we're going to talk about four movies today. Uh, the first movie we're going to talk about, the one that I think everyone agrees the Academy just really missed the ball in nominating. I'm <laughs> um, talking Carnival of Souls, directed by Herc Harvey. Here's a synopsis for you. After a traumatic accident, a woman becomes drawn to a mysterious abandoned carnival. Some fun facts about it, you ask? Okay. So it was written, produced, and directed by Herc Harvey, and he also appears in the film as the ghoulish stranger who stalks the main character throughout the film. It's filmed in Lawrence, Kansas, and Salt Lake City, and was shot on a budget of $33,000. It was Harvey's only feature film and did not gain widespread attention when originally released as a double feature with The Devil's Messenger in 1962. So, Kyle, this was your pick of a movie we should watch for this supplemental episode, so why don't you start off with what you thought of Carnival of Souls? You know, it was a a big swing, you know? No, Mm -hmm. uh, I think... I mean, clearly it's a B movie, and uh, you know I was going off of Letterbox reviews or rather star ratings mm-hmm. um, from the year, but uh, yeah, I mean it's a B movie that I think was definitely an early example of psychological horror. Um, you know, it wasn't terrible. No, it wasn't. It was pretty. It was. It was fun. Yes, it worked. It really worked. And to see the scale of like, you know, just kind of being like an independent production at the time and. For what they accomplished uh, with, you know, being outside the Hollywood system at that time, I think was awesome. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. I mean, it is a it is a B movie. It's you know psychological thriller, horror, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I do think it is very much a you know in the '60s. Now we're starting to see more independent films happening at all. Like people were breaking outside of the studio system. And this 62 is still pretty early for that to be happening, but so this is kind of the precursor to those things that started happening later and that are still happening now. And so I think it is interesting to see that kind of the early beginnings of that, which did, you know, lead the way for a lot of independent filmmakers. And I think that Carnival of Souls, um, there are a lot of shots in it that I think are really, really cool and like look great. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of stuff too, you know, it's like French New Wave type stuff, which we're going to be talking some of that today too, but... Um, you know, they're really like applauded for their ingenious ways that they like, you know, figured out, you know, like cameras on dollies and blah, blah, blah. And like ways that they just like, they didn't really know what they were doing. So they just figured it out and it looked super cool and it changed filmmaking. And I think that this movie, you know, they had a small budget, they were just kind of filming it and it has that same sort of feel to it. Um, so I think that's why it probably has become a cult classic later in life, because I think that it does show a lot of that same ingenuity that filmmaker, that people who mm-hmm. like film really respect. So, yeah, I don't, I didn't hate it. I don't, I mean, it's, it would never have been nominated for an Oscar in 1963. No, but, uh, yeah. But, you know, I didn't think it was bad at all. I thought it was really interesting. It was very, uh, like, Final Destination or something. I don't know, but, like narrowly escaping death or not escaping death and then having it haunt you. I think it's an interesting story. I think the the only thing that I think really like tips it into like 
B-movie territory still is the performances are very B-movie. Uh, some, some of them are pretty strong. I don't know. Yeah, but it's very, like, over-the-top, yeah. clutching-at-your-face, screaming type stuff. Yeah. But Well, Carnival of Souls is why we watched three other movies for the supplemental <laughs> episode, so... Yeah. We can move on to those if you'd like. Okay, well, let me just tell you what some other people thought about Carnival of Souls first. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 73% and a critic score of 86%. The critic consensus is Carnival of Souls offers delightfully chilling proof that when it comes to telling an effective horror story, less can often be much, much more. Oh, isn't that cute? It is cute. Um, I could not find any box office numbers for it. And it did not, it was not nominated for any awards, nor won any awards. <laughs> well, duh. As far as its legacy, um, in 2012, the Academy Film Archive restored it. Um, and the film has been named as a precursor to the works of various filmmakers, including David Lynch and George A. Romero. Boom. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. All right, you want to talk about a next, the next movie? Yeah. A little bit more widely acclaimed. We're talking about Jules and Jim. Directed by Francois Truffaut, uh, distributed in the U.S. by Janice Studios. Synopsis. Decades of a love triangle concerning two friends and an impulsive woman. (laughs) Here's some fun facts for you. The film is based on Henri-Pierre Rocher. I I can't pronounce French names. I'm sorry. I should have tried harder. Anyway, his book, his 1953 semi-auto autobiographical novel describing his relationship with a young writer and his wife. Truffaut came across the book in the mid-1950s while browsing through some secondhand books at a shop, and later he befriended the elderly writer who had published his first novel at the age of 74. The author approved of the young director's interest to adapt his work to another medium. So that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, The director of photography, Raoul Raoul Coutard. Yep. Used lightweight photographic equipment that hadn't been used before to create a fluid style to the camera work, even mounting some of the cameras on bicycles. And this was one of the earliest foreign films to be distributed in the U.S. by two Harvard students, Cyrus Harvey and Brian Halliday, under their newly formed company, Janus Films. That's really awesome. I didn't know that. Janus Films went on to distribute all sorts of classic foreign films and is now owned by Criterion. Well, that's a fun fact. Thank you, They were Devin. all fun facts. All my facts are fun. Mm-hmm. So what did you think of Jules and Jim? This is my second viewing, so. Yeah, this was the first time I'd seen it. Um, I think this is my first Truffaut movie at all, actually. Well, that's embarrassing. Okay. <laughs> so we gotta start somewhere. Sure. This is where I started. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed it, honestly. Um, what was I saying? The, the plot of it. I said to you, I was like, this is the most French movie. Like, this, like, weird three... Like, I don't even know what the relationship story is. You know, it's it's not anything that we're used to seeing or knowing about in America. But I think in France, maybe it's a bit more acceptable. <laughs> but What? To, like, be married to a woman and then be like, to your best friend, oh, you guys are in love now? That's cool. No worries. Huh? Have fun. <laughs> I think I think <laughs> American culture is, is behind, but I think I think we're we're finally arriving to that place with uh, open relationships and whatnot. I mean, I think it works for some people. I think it doesn't work for <laughs> others. Um, I would say it didn't work for Jules and Jim. So. <laughs> I would say it definitely did not work out for Jules and Jim, at least for Jules. But um, no, I really liked it. I thought that it was fun. Um, 
I like the stuff. It's uh, the thing too about this is that especially when you're watching other movies from this time period, and then when you watch this next to them, the pacing of this movie is like insanely fast compared to other stuff that was happening in 1962. Like, yeah, it's just like you know. And I think that that's it holds up a little bit better because of that too. Because now in, in 2020, we're you know a bit more used to faster paced movies, so I think mm-hmm. this kind of uh, fits in well with that. Um, interesting, because that's actually what I dislike about Jules and Jim. The pacing? Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah, I, I actually find that it was kind of maybe like a unique way to approach um, attacking a novel mm-hmm. and putting it in, you know, in the in the frame of an hour, hour and a half, or hour and a half, two hour movie. Um, but no, I, I actually did not enjoy that. I thought it was too quick, didn't let it breathe. I mean, yeah, sure. I think they could have gave us a lot of the same information without it being so convoluted and quick. You know what I mean? I think they could have let things breathe rather than just, like, throw everything at the wall in the first 15 minutes and hope you keep up, you know? I really like that, though. I just, I really enjoyed the, like, kind of narration of what was happening, like, overplayed over scenes of them, that kind of stuff. I just really, mm-hmm. I think that's a very efficient way to tell a story that's still, like, visually interesting as opposed to Sure. Like, I mean, I thought it was visually but... interesting. Sure. I just, again, it just, it felt like a device, and I didn't really appreciate that. I guess. Mm, I like it. I feel like when I'm like writing stuff, I'm always just like, how do I get all this like exposition out? And I'm like, well, oh, this do, is cool. I love do this. A narration. <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's the cheapest way to tell a story. I know, but I think that in this case, it really worked because I don't know. I think the three of them like had really good chemistry together. <laughs> and so you could just like see that. So it didn't like, I didn't need a lot of buildup to like understand how this situation ar- arose because I feel like. Their chemistry that they all had with each other was like very strong. But I thought they gave a lot of build up. Is my is you my think problem. so? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like uh, they just try to again, like the book, probably. You know, it needed to establish these characters as friends and like how they were in Paris nightlife and blah blah blah. And again, I think that they did that well. I think the device works. I just it's not my cup of tea. Okay. It's not my cup of tea. I would because again, the the first fifteen minutes is just all exposition. Just voiceover narration describing, but it's like setting interesting. Up who these I feel. Like, are. I see what you're saying because I do think sometimes people, you know, lean on narration as a crutch and it, it's hindering more than helping just because it's the easy way to get exposition out. But I feel like mm-hmm. in this case, the 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 narration added to it because I feel like there were. It was like the narrator itself was like its own character with it. You know what I mean? Like kind of like, I don't want to say like passing judgment, but I mean there was it was like funny at times. It was you know, worked well within the plot. Like, there'd be times the narration would, like, stop, and then the people, when they started talking again, it would kind of, like, almost be answering the narration in a way, which I thought was interesting. I thought it worked really well. Agree to disagree. I thought it worked. I just, again, I didn't like I never said it didn't work. Yeah. I just said I didn't like the approach. Okay. I get it. I yeah. get it. And I'm, I'm glad you're, you know, I'm always for, you know, I, I, I'm glad he tried something kind of, it felt new and refreshing as far as, again, approaching a book without having to make something two and a half, three hours or lose a big part of the story. Mm-hmm. So, again, I think, it was, I think it was necessary and it was cool. I just, when looking at the rest of his work, it just kind of falls for me because, I don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe I just need to see more of his work and sure. then I would. Or maybe you won't like it because you're like, where's the voiceover? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> you know what this movie needed more of? Voiceover. Voiceover. <laughs> just qu- quickly explain to me who these characters are. <laughs> yeah. See, that's what I don't like. You know what I mean? I don't. Yeah. I, we could have figured it out. 
Yeah. Anyway. Um, I will say the only, like, other, like, real um, nitpick that I have with it is that the female character... What is her name in the movie? I can't... Catherine. Catherine. She, um... I feel like she's a really interesting character and very unlike any other female characters that you've seen in the 60s and beyond, honestly. But I also felt like there was a missed opportunity to kind of, like, delve into her motivations a little bit more. I feel Mm. like the movie just kind of cast her as this, like, agent of chaos in these two men's lives. Where I thought, I mean, she's the most interesting person in that little Mm. threesome. So, like, I would have, I would have enjoyed a bit more information about her as opposed to just how these men reacted to her. I thought they like handled her really respectively though. Like it was still coming from the stories of the story of Jules and Jim. It was coming from their perspective. I actually thought she was very nuanced and like, I loved wanting to know more, but still she was intriguing and she wasn't just one thing. Like, Mm -hmm. no, I think she's more developed than a lot of female characters in the sixties, but Mm -hmm. like, I don't know. I still would have preferred more information on her. You would have preferred Jules and Jim and, and Catherine. Catherine. Yes, I would have. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I think I think she's fascinating. I would love to dive into more of who she is. But, mm-hmm. again, I think she's treated so, it's very, like, hands-off, but yet, I don't know. We do get a lot. We get I a lot. we can feel for her. In, in like, the first, thing. you know, three-fourths of it. But I would say that her decisions at the end of the movie, I feel like, are not fully... I needed more information about her in the later stages to understand why she chose to do what she did. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I feel like that came out of nowhere, honestly. I was just like, okay. Sure. But. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I hear you. I do. I I hear you. I just, I'm, I'm totally okay with it. I like the mystery of it. You know Coming from a man's perspective, we, right. do, we just don't understand women sometimes, and that's what it is. I do think that's what it is. But for 1962, that's completely okay. Like, um, I think it was just about this enigmatic female character that you just can't get a grasp on, but mm-hmm. you're so fascinated with her. Like, we're as fascinated with her as the characters are. Yeah, she's fascinating. Yeah, she is. I, but I agree. I know. I understand what you're saying. There's some justice not served by like not knowing everything about her. But yeah, almost if there was like a it would be kind of cool if there was almost a like a companion movie. Yeah, it's just like her like side, her of person, yeah, her side of it. Jules and Jim, and then Catherine. Like that—that's something he would have done. Like that's, that's something Chiffon would have done. But you know, maybe that's too many liberties with the book he was adapting. But. Yeah, who knows? Missed opportunity. Yeah. All right. Do you want to know what other people thought about Jules and Jim? Let me guess. They loved it. They did. <laughs> it has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 89% and a critic score of 92%. The critic's consensus reads, Francois Truffaut's arguable masterpiece in a filmography full of masterpieces ready to be argued for, Jules and Jim is an internal ode to boundless love. Um, as far as the box office, the only, it had over a million admissions in France. So I don't know how much money that is, but over a million people went to go see it, apparently. So it's probably good. I don't know. Um, as far as awards, um, it wasn't nominated for any Oscars, but it won the 1962 Grand Prix of French Film Prizes. The I apologize. I can't. Why, why do the you write these things? The Etoile? I don't know. It won, like, the big best picture, basically, of France. 
Um, and Jean Moreau won that year's prize for Best Actress. It was ranked 46 in Empire's Magazine's list of the 100 best films of world cinema in 2010. The soundtrack was named as one of the 10 best soundtracks by Time Magazine. And on Sight and Sound's top 250 list, it's currently ranked at the number 127. Cool. Yep, yep, yep. Moving on to a, a decidedly not independent picture. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, directed by John Ford, produced by Paramount Pictures. Synopsis. A senator who became famous for killing a notorious outlaw returns for the funeral of an old friend and tells the truth about his deed. Some fun facts for you. Uh, the screenplay was by James Warner Bella and Willis Goldbeck and was adapted from a 1953 short story written by Dorothy M. Johnson. In contrast to prior John Ford Westerns, Liberty Valance was shot in black and white on Paramount sound stages. Multiple stories and speculations exist to explain this decision. Ford claimed to prefer that medium over color, saying, In black and white, you've got to be very careful. You've got to know your job, lay your shadows in properly, get your perspective right, but in color, there it is. You might say I'm old-fashioned, but black and white is real photography. Ford also reportedly argued that the climactic shootout between Valance and Stoddard would not have worked in color. Others have interpreted the absence of the magnificent outdoor vistas so prevalent earlier Ford Westerns as, quote, a fundamental reimagining by Ford of his mythic West, a grittier, less romantic, more realistic portrayal of frontier life. A more pragmatic interpretation cites the fact that Wayne and Stewart, two of Hollywood's biggest stars working together for the first time, were considerably older, 54 and 53 <laughs> respectively, than the characters they were playing. Filming in black and white helped ease the suspension of disbelief. According to cinematographer William H. Clothier, however, there was one reason and one reason only. Paramount was cutting co- cutting costs. <laughs> Otherwise, we would have been in Monument Valley or Brackettville and we would have had color stock. Ford had to accept those terms and make the film. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's all I got. And you want me to start talking about it? Yep. All right. So we watched The Man Shot Liberty Valance because I was talking to my parents and uh, I was reading off a list of of movies that came out in 62 that were like our options for the supplemental. And uh, they both got very excited when I said The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And as like, you know, we weren't there in 62. They were. So we took their word for it. And personally, like I... Um, I think there's only been, like, one John Ford movie we've watched for this podcast that I haven't liked. Which one was that? Uh, Green was my valley. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but I, I like John Ford, so I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot, even though. But I was also, because I was telling my parents, what did we watch? Um, The Longest Day. And I was like, can you explain John Wayne to me? Because I don't understand why he was, like, the biggest star ever, because he's not good. And uh, they were like, I don't know. But this is the first John Wayne Western that I've ever seen. And I will say, I get it more now. I do think he (laughs) works in a Western more than he works in, like, other types of movies. Even at 54 or whatever he was in this movie. But um, I thought it was a really interesting movie. It's not my favorite. I'm not a huge fan of Westerns in general. But I did kind of... This is, like, Western light, in my opinion. It's not like there's a lot of... Riding around on horses and shooting on stuff, really. So, like... <laughs> it's just just Liberty Now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I, thought it was, I thought it was a fun little movie. Um, I do think that... The, <laughs> the, I wish it was, like, 20 minutes shorter. There's, like, the climactic shootout. 
<laughs> yeah. A truth is revealed. Like, a truth could have been revealed at that point, and then we could have just lost the last 20 minutes of the movie, and I think it would have been a stronger movie. But, you know, it's just, Jimmy Stewart. I, I disagree with that statement. But You liked the end? Yeah. I thought the ending dragged out so long. I mean, it dragged a little bit, but I, I loved what it was saying, though. Okay. Like I, I liked it. I thought the, the I thought the pacing reveal was great. Like this man was having to live with, you know, doing something he was against the whole time, his whole life basically. Mm-hmm. And he finds that wasn't him, but he still gets. Pre- I, I, I don't know. I think I think it added a, a much more interesting character dynamic in a movie that's certainly all about characters. Well, I agree. Like I think there still should have been that moment when he learns that he didn't do it. But like well, you just said, he should have shot him, and then John Wayne should have stepped out. No. I'm just saying it should have happened sooner. I think them going to that whole other thing and the whole Senate, like, that whole scene was so long of people just, like, talking about how great different candidates are, which, like, one person we've never even met before now. And there's people riding into a Senate on horses for no (laughs) reason. And, like, that that scene could not, like, should not have existed in that movie because it was, like, it was probably, like... It's how he became governor. Ten minutes long. Yeah, it was. And unnecessary. After you've, like, you've had the climax, like, the big thing. And I think anyone going into this movie, like, I don't know. I don't know. But I just think that it it wasn't, like, a shocking reveal, in my opinion. No, no, no. So to, like, push it off that long, I was just like, can we just get to the part where John Wayne tells him we didn't shoot this guy? Spoilers for Liberty Valance. But, um, you know what I mean? And I was like, I just don't need to listen to this other guy I've never met before, like, Rat, like, I wish you wouldn't have spoiled the movie, though. I'm sorry, but, like, the synopsis kind of spoils it. What does it say? It says he tells the truth about his deed. Sure. I don't know. It's kind of more mysterious, but... I'm sorry that I spoiled The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance for everybody. So, like, I'll just put one long beep over the okay. entire second part Perfect. of the review. Well, you tell me what you thought about it. I did. I fit it in there. All right, cool. <laughs> I did. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I mean, it's, you know, it's what you get. You get a, a you get John Wayne, John mm-hmm. Ford, Western movie, but with great character characterization. Like, I loved all the characters in the movie. That's what made it interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Scenes were all long. You yeah. know what I mean? Drawn out. But, like, in such ways that I, I mean, I cared about every character. I was with it. I truly was. When I didn't think I would be. Um, but, yeah. I mean, I was pleasantly surprised. I also agreed John Wayne gave a heck of a performance. Jimmy Stewart was... I mean, as Jimmy Stewart as ever. Uh, but I really like John Wayne's character in this movie. Mm-hmm. I really liked his presence in the movie. Um, so badass. Like, I just I, I just loved him. But also, like, kind of charming. And then, you know, he doesn't get everything he wants. Um, he reacts to that very well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I wish he would have handled his emotions a little bit better. But mm-hmm. at, the, at the end of the day... He did good on his part, so yeah, I appreciate it. But uh, yeah, I mean, interesting, interesting movie for sure. Interesting movie for sure. I'm curious to see what your parents think about it. If they even remember, it. I like, don't what think is, they fully remember. I wonder remember what the it, like but... story is with that. Why do they get so excited? I don't know. I think they just. I don't know if they remember like everything about I it. I know my grandma is also like a big fan of this movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's really good. I mean, you can't go wrong with Jimmy Stewart, honestly. So. Yeah, I mean, that's that's mostly true for sure. But, uh, I mean, I agree. It is probably too long, too. Yeah, and it's not even But it's that a long. short Western. Yeah. <laughs> is a thing. And compared to, like, all the other movies we had to watch for this podcast, it was, you know. 
Oh my god, yeah. Nothing, this is the but, year of long movies, for yeah. sure. So, I don't know. All right, I still what everybody a, else think about it? A lot of John Ford Westerns to see, but I, I really liked this I'm one. I'm sure we'll so. get to them. Oh, yeah. Um, so on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 92% and a critic score of 93%. The critics' consensus reads, Featuring a trio of classic leading men and a rich story captured by a director at the peak of his craft, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is one of the finest westerns ever filmed. Wow, okay. It is one of my favorite westerns I've ever seen, it, but I don't like westerns. because it is kind of like the anti-western, though. It like, is. We never see anything outside of this little main street. Mm-hmm. So it's really, that is kind of interesting to me. It is, and it's, it's yeah, it is a very anti-western type thing. Mm. I like it. All right, the box office made $8 million. Um, at the Oscars, it was nominated for one award for Best Costume Design, and it is one of the few westerns to ever be nominated in that category. Wow, okay. But it did not win. Um, as far as its legacy on Sight and Sound's Top 250, it's ranked at number 117. And in 2007, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. Very nice. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Now on to our final supplemental film. The final film. The final film. We have Cleo from 5 to 7, directed by Agnes Varda. Um, once again, distributed by Janice in the United States. Uh, synopsis. Cleo, a singer and hypochondriac, becomes increasingly <laughs> worried that she might have cancer while awaiting test results from her doctor. I just want to say, I think that that synopsis is actually, like, extremely sexist, but I'll get to that when I talk about the movie. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> facts. It was written by Agnes Varda. Notice she didn't say fun, so get ready. <laughs> I, it honestly was really hard to find information about this movie. There's not okay. a lot out there. Cool. Um, but Agnes Varda uh, wrote it as well as directed it. Jean-Luc Godard, Anna Karina, and Jean-Claude Brelay. Brelay? Mm. All make uncredited cameo appearances as the actors in the silent film shown to Cleo and her friend. Uh, the final, the film actually covers Cleo from 5 to 6.30. <laughs> the final chapter for the film ends at 6.30, but in France, 5 to 7 is known as the time that lovers meet. Oh, that's sweet. I didn't know that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. The film is included in Roger Ebert's Great Movies list, and of the film, Ebert stated, quote, Varda is sometimes referred to as the godmother of the French New Wave. I have been guilty of that myself. Nothing could be more unfair. Varda is the very soul. Only the fact that she is a woman, I fear, prevented her from being routinely included with Godard, Truffaut, Resnat, Charbrol, Rivet, Romare, and for that matter, her husband, Jacques Demy. The passage of time has been kinder to her films than some of theirs, and Cleo from 5 to 7 plays today as startlingly modern. Released in 1962, it seems as innovative and influential as any new wave film. Who said that? Roger Ebert. Hmm, that's awesome. His death anniversary just the other day, so that's, sorry. Uh, yeah, Cleo 5 to 7. You go ahead and start. I'll start? Okay. Well, it's a good movie. It really is. This is a, what? This is a, <laughs> a great <laughs> intro. <laughs> I know. I mean, I actually just full-heartedly agree with everything Roger Ebert just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is our second viewing of the film together. Um, I know you absolutely love it. I do. Um, so, yeah, I definitely thought it would be a film to include on this list. Um, yeah, it's good. You know... Uh, you know what? I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to backpedal a little bit. I can't... I want to completely agree with Roger Ebert, but I can't. Because I have not seen enough of Varda's work. Um, but if this is any measure of the film types of films she made, 
I mean, I would absolutely agree with her because they're just as poignant as, I mean, the films that, yeah, Godard and Truffaut were making right at this time as well. Um, I just really need to explore more of her work. Do you know where this, like, falls in her catalog? Or? I think this is pretty early. I think this might be her first film. Her first film. Well, yeah. it's, I mean, it's extraordinary for that, right? The whole, like, real-time feel, which, I mean, very much feels exactly like uh, The 400 Blows or or Breathless, um, it plays out so nice when someone's, like, literally waiting for something. I mean, uh, I would say the other two are kind of, like, cat and mousey or whatever, but this one is very much just, like, we know what it's like to wait on news. I just wish I could wait on it while walking the streets of Paris. <laughs> yeah. Like, there, it's just, there's something magical to it at that point, and just the people you meet, the characters you come across, the lo- the locales uh, you're in. It's just, oh, man, it's just a delight to watch. It's just, it's an absolute delight. Mm-hmm. Um, I lo- The performances, I think, are all solid. I think everything's pretty to look at, people included. Um, there's just not, there's nothing I can say I truly dislike about this movie. There's nothing I can say I truly dislike about it. I enjoy every minute of Cleo from 5 to 7. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, well, yeah, like you said, this is um, this is probably one of my favorite films of all time. It's probably definitely in my top 10. Um, and I love it. And I think that for me, what's interesting is, especially in the 60s, to have a film directed by a woman, I think you... it it stands out in such contrast. I think even, you know, much more recently there, there aren't a lot of movies that feature women talking to each other as much as this film does, which I really, really like. I think this film is very much like about womanhood and like the performative aspects of it. I think it's really interesting to see the way Cleo acts, um, when men are around compared to how she acts when she's just like, it's just Mm -hmm. her and other women and how they talk about men. Um, and I just think it's really interesting. And I mean, it's not like they no, like... No, it's, 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 it's this interesting like dichotomy between that and Jules and Jim, right? Right, right. Because it's like, you know, these guys are like, you know, hitting on them from a car or whatever, like whistling at them or whatever. And they're both just kind of like rolling their eyes like they're ridiculous. You know what I mean? Which I just don't think that you saw a lot of in movies from that time. Because almost every other movie from that time was from a man's perspective. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. And I just think it's interesting, you know, the way that she the way people talk about her in the film you know like that she's they kind of dismiss her she's not taken very seriously and when she's around you know her her lover and the musicians that she works with and they're kind of being dismissed or she kind of like plays into their stereotypes of her whereas then when she's on her when she's with her maid or her friend she's more herself. And even when she's with her maid, um, I feel like she, cause that the maid has like a more maternal, she kind of play, she like is more like dependent on her, but when she's mm-hmm. with her friend and they're two like equals, it's a much different dynamic. And so I just think it's a really like interesting, um, look at the ways that women, you know, change the way that they act depending on who they're with and like what's sure. expected of them. So if like men have these ideas of what women are supposed to be, especially in the sixties, I think it was much more common for women to play into that because that's what was expected of them, which I think is interesting. And I think that it still speaks to a lot today. You know, you hear reports that women's health issues go unnoticed far more than men because doctors don't take them seriously because people don't 
Right. Their ailments aren't taken as seriously. And I feel like this is the same thing, which is why I think it's sexist that the synopsis calls her hypochondriac because I don't think she literally has cancer. So, like, <laughs> it's really... <laughs> I love promoting a movie and then delivering the last few minutes, right? Well, that's, I'm sorry. That's your, that's your thing. I don't think your that MO. really, like, harms anything of watching that it movie. Doesn't. It but doesn't. you know what I mean? It's just, like... She's not a hypochondriac. She has been experiencing symptoms. Like, she doesn't feel well, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I think what I really love, too, is, like, it's very, like, about... It's very French and, like, about existentialism and her, for the first time in her young life, like, having to, like, contemplate death and that sort of thing. And so what I really think is interesting, too, is that, like, she can't really find any common footing with these people she's interacting with until, at the end, she runs into this soldier who is also on a daily basis having to like confront the fact that he could die at any time and it feel and then like they are more Do you know what I mean? I'm making no. little interlocking <laughs> motions with I, my I'm hands. sure they can hear it. <laughs> yeah. Um but they're just more sympathetic to each other and they have a more easy rapport than she has with other people, I think because they're on the same for that moment in time they're on the same page. So I just think it's a really interesting film, and it is, it's wonderful to just walk through Paris for, you know, an hour and a half. So that's why I love Cleo from 5 to 7. I mean, yeah, I think it works. I mean, yeah. Again, I just, I think everything works about it. Mm-hmm. I really like what you said, though. Thank you. You want to know what other people think about it? Sure. So it has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 90% and a critic score of 96%. The critic consensus reads... Cleo from 5 to 7 represents a beautifully filmed highlight of the French New Wave that encapsulates the appeal of the era while departing from its negative connotation, negative conventions, excuse me. Um, as far as box office, according to Box Office Mojo, it made $1,886 worldwide. What? So not a smash hit. <laughs> I'm going to assume, I know it, it was played at the Cannes Film Festival. I'm going to assume it didn't have like a... A big opening okay. <laughs> type thing. Um, it wasn't nominated for any um, awards, really. As far as its legacy, on Sight and Sound's list, it's listed at number 202, and it is one of the only, one of only six female-directed films on that list. Wow. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> All right, so those are our supplementals. Um, do you think any of these movies should have been nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars? I mean, yeah, I think the... Besides Carnival Souls, <laughs> I think the other three definitely stood a chance amongst, you know, typical criteria or whatever. Um, I mean, I certainly would love to see, obviously, like, Clear Over 5-7 get the recognition. However, I still fully concur that Lawrence of Arabia wins. Sure. I think, you know, it's really interesting for this this year in particular at the Oscars, it was, like, the battle of the epics. Because, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. four of the five movies were epics. Um, and then To Kill a Mockingbird kind of snuck in there. And these these four movies that we looked at were all much smaller films. Yeah. Much like, um, just like quieter films, smaller. They were all black and white as opposed to color. And um, so I do think that, you know, sometimes when you have a lot of, like, spectacle almost always gets rewarded over subtlety when it comes to the Oscars. And in this case, there was a lot of spectacle and if one, only one slot was available for something quieter, I do think To Kill a Mockingbird is probably the best choice for, for that sure. slot. Yeah. Personally, and I know in the 60s, like, a foreign film was never going to be nominated for Best Picture. But, I mean, I do think Cleo from 5 to 7 is a better film than 
Mutiny on the Bounty or The Longest Day. Um, was there a foreign category this year? There was, but they weren't nominated. None of the things we watched were? Mm-mm. Wow. And I might, sometimes there's a delay in when films are eligible for that category. I should have looked at the next oh, okay. year, but yeah, I don't think so. Because okay. it would have come up if it was nominated for Best Foreign Picture either yeah. way. But, um, so no, I don't, I mean, I don't think the French New Wave is really like embraced by America until much later, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't think like as it was happening, people in America were like about it, but. Sure. Or at least the Academy. Hey, the, the Janice guys. <laughs> Yeah, those guys. <laughs> I don't think they were part of the, the voting yeah. body <laughs> of the Academy. But, uh, so yeah, so I still think that Lawrence of Arabia 100% yeah. deserved that win. But I think, you know, the supplementals, it's it's good to sometimes look at some films that that are smaller, that are I mean, still absolutely. brilliant. I mean, I don't think, at the end of the day, like, as much as like, I love the Oscars and, like, what they... The, the night of glamour and Hollywood they bring, it's just, like... It's not my determination of what the, be- the best movie is ever. So, truly. Okay. It's, like, the basis of our whole podcast. But cool! <laughs> I mean, that's a way to give it grounding, right? It's the whole reason we're doing this, is to watch more movies that we wouldn't typically see, especially anything prior to, like, the 90s, right? But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean... The point is, like, rarely do I think they actually get it right. That's true. But this year, for 1963, we think that they did, They did. They did, yes. All right. All right, well, that's it for this. From what I've seen, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) A lot more movies came out in 1962. A lot did. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Next week, we'll be back with a regular episode for uh, movies from the 1983 ceremony, movies that came out in 1982. So uh, we'll see you then. Bye.